The scripture is taken from Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of, way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. What is a delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chef that wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You can be seated. Every now and then a book comes along that God uses to really rock my world to help me to grow in my relationship with him, to become uh, more of the man that he has called me to be, the father, the husband, uh, to really uh, nourish uh, my relationship with him. And just a few months ago, that book is the one I'm holding in my hand called Pray in the Bible. It is a simple little book. You can tell it's not uh, uh, super thick. It is very practical, written by Don Whitney. Uh, Dr. Whitney's a professor at Southern Seminary. And so... um, As a result of this book, I began to read uh, or began to pray through the Psalms. And this has gone now for about uh, three or four months, maybe five now. And I must tell you that the, the time in the last five months, I have grown more in my prayer life, no lie, than in all of the years combined. And so uh, we had uh, we ordered loads of these, but uh, I was told by the folks out front that they all got gone. We'll get more. I highly recommend it to you. We have just finished a series on prayer, and it occurred to me that if we're going to do a series on prayer and the encouragement is to pray through the Psalms, then it makes sense for us to do a series on the Psalms so that you can learn how to understand it is what it is that you're praying. And so over the next seven weeks, including today, we'll jump into the Psalms and discover uh, what it is that the psalmist would have us to uh, pray. There are 150 Psalms. The word psalm itself means hymn or song. So there are 150 of them. It means hymn or song. And we'll discover there are seven different types of Psalms. But the first one opens up really as a way to introduce the entire collection of psalms. The psalms were written by probably about six or seven different authors. Uh, The most notable is David. The uh, probably second most is Moses, then the sons of Asaph. Um, There are other authors of the psalms, but those are the three primary authors. As we uh, jump into Psalm 1, we discover a stark contrast that is made, that between the righteous person and the wicked person. I want to say to you this morning, we do not like uh, these stark contrasts typically in life, but the writer of Psalm 1 says, there is no straddling the fence. You are either righteous or you are wicked. And just in case you say, well, that's quite narrow, I'm not sure if I buy that. By the end of our time, we will encounter Jesus who says the same thing. 
And so here in this psalm, I have a very simple outline. Uh, the righteous and the wicked, who they are, what they do, and what will happen to them. Quite simple. Let's jump in. Psalm 1 begins with the word blessed, which we could translate pretty simply meaning happy. Blessed, and it ends with the word perish. And so it's as if the righteous and the wicked are contrasted as those who are blessed and those who will perish. So you see the blessed, you see the perishing all in the psalm. Let me give you three contrasting characteristics of the righteous and the wicked. First of all, we discover that the righteous is stable. He is like or she is like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. Trees, roots down deep, are stable and strong. The wicked are unstable. They are like chaff. We'll look at what chaff is in a moment. Isaiah 57, for the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. It tosses up the mire and the dirt. So the wicked are unstable. Their future is uncertain. Their present is unsure. They live in a constant state of flux and insecurity. Secondly, the righteous are fruitful. It will be like a tree or the righteous person will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which brings forth its fruit in its season. Not so the wicked. They are like the chaff which is driven by the wind. So what is chaff? Chaff is the tiny husk that, that, that is on the outside of wheat. So in the psalmist's day, on a plateau, a hill of sorts, they would take the wheat up where the wind crossed over and through. And with a winnowing shovel, perhaps akin to our pitchfork, the farmer would take the wheat, the big bundle of wheat, toss it up into the air. The winds that would blow through would drive the chaff away from the wheat because it can't be eaten. And what would remain would be the edible wheat. Chaff produces no fruit. As a matter of fact, chaff makes good fruit unable to be eaten so the uh, the the righteous are stable the wicked unstable the righteous are fruitful the wicked unfruitful finally the righteous are useful its leaf does not wither uh, this tree and whatever he does he prospers the righteous person prospers in his or her work not so the wicked, they are like chaff which has no use. It is either blown up or blown away rather or burned up. So this is the time of signing, right? NFL players are signing contracts. NBA players are signing contracts. We sat around my dinner table last night and mused over what we would do if we were getting some of this money. I mean, it's unbelievable, isn't it? And so one of those guys is Derek Carr. Uh, if you watch ESPN, you may have seen his video. He signed a contract making him the highest paid NFL player right now. A contract extension, five years for $125 million. But his interview has caught attention. Check it out. 
Now, what is interesting is that this video so stands out because it is so unusual. That someone who is coming into so much money has this intentionality about how he is going to use it. So, who the wicked and the righteous are. Secondly, what they do. The wicked hang out with the wicked. Notice the way it is written here. Blessed is the man who walks not, it's a negative, in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of mockers. So there's, there is a, a progression here. It is a downward progression. Walks, stands, sits. Walks not in the counsel of the wicked, stands in the way of the sinners, or sits in the seat of the mockers. Well, what does this mean to walk in the counsel of the wicked? Walk uh, refers to a, a, a well-beaten path, a worn path. To walk in the way or stand in the way is to stand in a, a worn path, we might say habits, of the wicked. So you have walk. When you walk around in, uh, you might think of that as dabbling in. I think I can touch and not get burned. I think I can play with fire, but I won't go there. To stand in means there's a little bit more of identification. I'm in now. I'm, I'm in with this group, and this is what I'm doing. To sit down is significant because not are you only now participating in the deeds of the wicked, but you are making fun of people who do not. Look at this. To sit in the seat of the scoffers. How does this happen? All right, so in the early service, loads of teenagers. In this service, more teenagers. Please hear me. Please hear me. This begins when you as a teenager, and it begins mostly in teen, sometimes preteen years, begin to think in your mind that your parents who once were so wise may not be so much so after all. Why? Well, you have friends who seem smarter than mom and dad. And your friends seem to know more than your mom and your dad now know. I mean, if, let's face it, if, if mom or dad can't work their cell phones, you're the one who fixes them. So you've just figured out, since you're technologically savvy, that perhaps you are wisdom savvy. You know the ways of the world. And mom and dad say no, and you push against it. Or they say yes, and you push against it. So you walk in the counsel of the wicked. You stand in the way of the sinners. You sit in the seat and you'll find yourself mocking the very values you once espoused. It is downward. It is gradual. I was at a meeting of community leaders and this stuck in my head. Mark said these very words. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. That's what this says. Show me your friends. And I'll show you your future. You are who you hang out with. And when you think for some reason 
that you have figured things out and you can do life your way and you won't get caught. You won't get caught up in the mess. The psalmist says no. This word sinners is interesting here. Why is it interesting? Because it means to miss the mark. It is the most common word used for sin in the New Testament. It means to miss the mark. Well, when you first read that, you'll think, well, that means I was aiming and I missed. You know, I was aiming at a target and I missed. No, the word means to intentionally aim at the wrong target. So you intentionally aim at the wrong target. Missing the mark as has intentionality about it. It means intentionally choosing the wrong path. You see it, you go down it, you know it's wrong, you see the target, you say, I'm not aiming for that target, and you determine that you're going to aim for a completely different target. That's what it means. On February 22nd, 1911, a man by the name of Gaston Hervieux took his uh, parachute up the Eiffel Tower and he was going to try and see if it would work. And so sure enough, it did. It worked. But the, the trick was that he, he didn't tie himself to it. He had a 160-pound dummy that he tied to the parachute that floated safely to the ground. Well... There was a guy who decided that he wanted to one-up him. He was an Austrian tailor. His name was Reichelt. And so it was almost a year to the day later that Reichelt shows up at the uh, same Eiffel Tower. He's got his parachute. He's posing for pictures, and he has been making fun of her view for not being brave enough to climb into his own parachute. So Hairview sees him there. He has gone to survey his parachute. He knows there are two problems. Number one, it doesn't contain near enough uh, material. So the square footage isn't near enough to be able to pick up the air uh, that, that will pick up the parachute. Number two, he is not jumping from near high enough on the Eiffel Tower. So he confronts Raquel and he says, don't do this. Raquel has already bragged, I will not put a dummy on my parachute. I'll climb on it myself. Not only that, Raquel decided to ignore his own data. Why? He himself had jumped into a haystack. It had failed. He had jumped again, had broken his leg. It had failed. It, it had failed. But with the crowd standing around, he scaled the Eiffel Tower. He attached himself to the parachute. He jumped off only for it to pick up speed going 60 miles an hour. And he hit the ground in just a few seconds. All that was left was his mangled body, a dust storm, and a frost storm. It was a cold morning. What is Raquel doing? Everybody around him said one thing. He deliberately chose to aim at another target. That's what the wicked do. So what do the righteous do? Well, I must say to you, it doesn't sound near as fun. Straight up. Not so the righteous. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
All right, so if you have a choice, you can go over here and live in all kinds of sin, right? Just do whatever you want. The crowd's doing it. Or, no, I think I'll meditate on God's word. Well, if you put signs up, I think the line's going to be longer on this is what everybody else is doing, and this is what the righteous man or woman is doing, right? Why? Scripture says there's pleasure in sin for a while. Sin always feels good at first. Sin is appealing. Sin is attractive. Sin comes packaged nicely. It comes in all of these wonderful things that appeal to us as human beings. So what does this word meditate mean? It means to speak with oneself. It's self-talk. When you meditate, you take God's word and you speak God's word to yourselves. This is why it's so critical that you pray the Psalms. Why? They are God's hymn book given to you so that you can begin to preach and speak and pray these words out loud and they begin to wash over your soul. Well, there are several different kinds, uh, seven to be exact. Let me give them to you because I think these seven kinds of psalms give us then the, the, the seven kinds of situations we may find ourselves in where we need to pray very specifically in those situations. And then over the next few weeks, we'll work through these psalms and you will know, uh, with God's help, we will help you to know how to pray in all of these situations. The first one is a hymn. It's a praise. So when your heart is overflowing with praise to God, one of these psalms will just take that overflowing heart and lift it up even higher. The second big word, penitential psalms. These are psalms for when you've blown it, when you've failed, when you've gotten it wrong. The third are wisdom psalms, decision-making psalms. Psalms to pray when you need God's counsel and the counsel of others may be failing you. Wisdom psalms are so helpful. The fourth you may find to be a bit distant messianic psalms. Psalms that describe to uh, the, the, the coming Christ. Psalms 21, or 22 rather, 23 and 24 are all messianic psalms. As a matter of fact, Jesus quoted Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quoted that psalm from the, from the cross. These psalms help get our focus off of ourselves and onto Christ. And then there, there uh, another big word, imprecatory psalms. What are those? Those are psalms you pray for people you want God to kill. I'm just kidding, but that's why David prayed them. You see, if you're a king and you've got enemies marching in, you better sing some songs saying, God, come in and take them out, right? But for us, how might we pray those psalms? I'm not sure that they work on the football field right before you go out. I really don't think God takes sides in those things, but... How do they work? Each of us has three arch enemies. We have three enemies. Our three enemies are Satan, the world, and our sinful nature. We will talk about how to take the imprecatory psalms and apply them to praying for the enemies that assail us. Lament psalms when you're sad, when your heart is breaking, when you're grieving. And finally, royal psalms 
When you want to see God's love for Israel's King David, that will show you his love for his own King Jesus. Those are the divisions of the Psalms. So what do you do? Well, at the right time, you pray the right psalm. And we got to figure out how to do that, don't we? And then finally, what's going to happen to the wicked and the righteous? The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I don't think it's coincidental that if you go to the greatest sermon ever preached, which was preached by Jesus, we call it in biblical studies the Sermon on the Mount, that the Sermon on the Mount begins with the same word as Psalm 1 begins with, blessed. And if you go to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when you get to the end of the Sermon on the, the, the Mount, the the illustration is one of perishing. It's as if Jesus, who most likely had memorized all of the Psalms, in his own Sermon on the Mount, leaned in on Psalm 1 to preach that sermon. Well, what did Jesus describe at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7? At the very end, he said, everyone then who hears these words of mine. uh, That's so much like Psalm 1, isn't it? Who meditates on my word, who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Because he had been founded on the rock, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Huh. So just like Psalm 1, which compares the wicked with the righteous, Jesus in his great sermon compares the, the foolish man with the wise. So, the writer of Psalm 1 says, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. I think almost always when we read this, we assume this is at the end of time. But I don't think it is here. So when is the judgment? It's every day. How does it work? Please hear me, all right? Please hear me. Look at me for a moment. The winds of life come at us sometimes at the most unexpected times in the most unexpected ways. And they judge us. They judge us. They reveal what is already there. You see, when the winds hit the large tree planted by streams of water, what happens to the tree? It may bend. It may bow. But it will eventually stand up straight again. 
When the winds hit the chaff, what happens to the chaff? It is gone, never to be remembered again. The winds of judgment. Now, these winds are both in times of distress and in times of success, right? The contract, that's a successful kind of wind. But when you get cut from the team, that's not so much so. They blow both. Sometimes success can be harder to deal with than failure. But the winds come. Notice this last phrase, but the Lord knows the way of the righteous. All right, so I have a question for you. Is the righteous person in Psalm 1 righteous because he meditates on the word? No. He meditates on the word. She meditates on the word because she's righteous. You say, well, Jerry, how do you know? Let's go now to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is preaching this sermon. He's got loads of religious people around him. They're astute Pharisees and Sadducees, probably some Essenes mixed in the crowd, some members of the Sanhedrin. Jesus is the latest and greatest. They want to hear what he has to say. Jesus opens his mouth, and if he's trying to win friends and influence people, this wasn't the sermon to do it. Why? Because he said to them, you have heard it said. Do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman to lust after her in your heart, you have already committed adultery. Uh Uh-oh. All of a sudden, the bar is raised, isn't it? There's no more pointing fingers. Why? There are a whole lot more adulterers in Jesus' audience than they thought when they showed up. But he didn't stop there. He said, I, you have heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you that if you slander someone with your tongue, you have committed murder. Ooh. All of a sudden, all the people who would point their proverbial self-righteous fingers at anyone else now has to pull them back. Why? Because standing in Jesus' audience is a whole lot of murderers. What's the point? His final illustration. Every good sermon ends with a great illustration, doesn't it? Look at it. We just read it. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, that's judgment, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had had strong walls. No. It wasn't what the builder did. It was where the house was built. Look at it. It did not fall because it had been founded on the what class? The rock. 
The house stood not because it had a great builder. It stood because it was built on a great foundation. The righteous man, the righteous woman in Psalm 1 is not righteous because of what they do. They do what they do because they're righteous. Well, then this begs the question. Let me throw in, I've got it in my notes Uh, Paul's take on this, Romans 3. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This begs the question then, if I don't do this to become righteous and I do it because I am righteous, then why do I need to learn to pray the Psalms? Why? Well, if you do, according to Psalm 1, you'll be like a tree planted by streams of water, which brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever it does, it prospers. And if you don't, you'll be like chaff blown by the wind. And when judgment comes, be that temptation or friends or family or success, You'll fail. Many of you are new to grace in the last three years. But three years ago, judgment came to our church. It was so unexpected. It was so difficult. Beginning about three and a half years ago, maybe four, where Freddie Martin, one of our members, Executive VP at Asheville Savings Bank called me one day. He said, we need to talk. Freddie, what's up? I am going blind. The doctors say they don't know when I will last be able to see. I remember Freddie saying to me over the course of months of conversation, Jerry, I'm trying to figure out the last image I want of my wife and kids so that that is imprinted in my mind. It's just a few months after that, on a February Sunday morning, that John and Kelsey Kingsley, they're on vacation today, were stopped right out here to come into worship when they got rear-ended And their one-year-old boy, Weston, died. During this 11 a.m. service, we wept and begged God to save that little boy's life. We heard the helicopter land in this right back here. Within seven days, within that, in that very week, Adam and Rachel Kinniger stopped by my office unexpected. Rachel, 31 years old, diagnosed with incurable cancer. Nine-month-old, four-year-old. The winds were blowing hard. We cried every week in this place. It would be months after that 
that Alec Hensley, 16-year-old, 17-year-old godly kid, loved the Lord, lived an example of a life, would be on his way to take the SAT on a foggy Saturday morning, miss the curve, find himself in a tree, dead. Mark and Michelle Wise, whom you heard from last week, were in Uganda. Mark emailed me, and he said, Jerry, I've heard, but I must, of what's going on, but I must share with you a dream I had. He said, in my dream, I saw a tree. It was large. Its branches had spread. It provided shade and fruit. But a storm came, and he said, in that dream, that tree had bent all the way over to the ground. And the rain, the wind was beating on that tree. He said, but you must know that by the time I had awakened, the sun had come out again, and the limbs had started to straighten themselves out. In this email from Uganda, Mark was saying, Jerry, take courage. Please hear me. It is not a question of whether or not the winds are going to come. They're coming. They may be winds of success or they may be winds of total fear and disappointment. They're coming. When they do, when they do, if you're a tree, you'll bend, but you won't break. If you're a house, you may lose some shutters. You may even lose a couple windows. But when the storm passes, you'll still be standing. You will still be standing strong. That's that's why. You need to learn to pray the Psalms, isn't it? That's why. You need to dig into God's Word. That's why the next six weeks we're going to do our dead level best to help you do that.